Hello everybody, Jeff Salzman here and welcome to the Daily Evolver, which for the first time ever is actually daily. Uh, last week I did a web episode, a video episode, every day Monday through Friday live on Integral Live. And Integral Live is the new like TV station of Integral Life. And um, I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed the format. I really enjoyed the sort of daily casualness of it. And uh, I'm going to resume that starting next week, October 9th. But I know a lot of my listeners really want to continue with the podcast format, and that's all good. So that's what follows here is the podcast format of the first two episodes that I did last week, which um, concerned Donald Trump's mind, and um, particularly as it relates to North Korea. So yeah, uh, the first day's episode sounds a little echoey because I forgot to turn on the good recorder, but the second one sounds great, I think. So, all right. Here are the daily episodes from Monday the 25th of September and Tuesday the 26th. Thanks for listening. One of the great fruits of integral consciousness is that we realize evolution. We feel evolution. We feel that procreate urge that Walt Whitman talked about. Always the procreate urge, he said. And we feel it in ourselves. We feel it in other people. We feel it in the whole of the cosmos that had to start 13.8 billion years ago. And, you know, atoms have turned into this, you know, have turned into us. And, um, and there's, you know, no reason to think that's not going to continue. And as we look at the large trajectory of this evolution, we see that it is, the, it is a generator of ever more goodness, truth, and beauty. And again, we can see that in ourselves, we can see that in other people, and we can see that in the world. Um, the problem with that, it's the, fine, the kind of the fine print, is that evolution, while beautiful, is not pretty. And while true, it is often attended by lies. And while good, it is often arises in something that we see as bad. And that is, you know, just part of the strange beauty of the whole thing. And of course, it brings us to the only topic that we could ever talk about, Donald Trump, who has become apparently the president of the United States of America. And um, it, that's something I have to rewrap my head around every morning, but I, I do. So I'm a good citizen. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, I've talked a lot about this on the Daily Evolver. And um, I have made the case that Trump is operating, in my view, uh, at least in the moral line of development, at uh, a stage that we would call egocentric. And it is a stage that is um, perfectly uh, appropriate for a three to five-year-old, <laughs> but becomes problematic as you know, people are arrested there and keep aging. So um, 
So what I wanted to talk about actually was is is not Trump so much per se, but this whole idea of being arrested at certain stages of development and how pathologies can sort of come online there. And I, I want to look at a, a, an article that I read that has really helped me to understand people better and Trump better also, also actually. And it's a, an article that's called um, When Your Child is a Psychopath. And it's about psychopathology in children. And I'm, I'm actually not saying that Trump's a psychopath. In fact, act, after having read this, I don't think he is necessarily. But, you know, part of this understanding that we're gaining at warp speed in terms of, you know, turning up the Google map on people and seeing all of these various spectrum that people are on and, and understanding them and seeing them as people having I-thou relationships with them rather than I-it relationships. That it turns out that for psychopathic children, I-thou relationships are actually very important, uh, that we have them with them. They, they don't have them with other people, but it's one of the ways that we get through, and I'll get to that in a second. But first, I do want to point out that the good old onion had this um, nailed, uh, uh, I guess, seven years ago in a, a major article that they released that I loved. Uh, new study reveals most children are unrepentant sociopaths. And I'll read it. It's um, from The Onion. A study published Monday in the Journal of Child Psychology and Psychiatry has concluded that an estimated 98% of children under the age of 10 are remorseless sociopaths with little regard for anything other than their own egocentric interests and pleasures. According to Dr. Leonard Mateo, developmental psychologist at the University of Minnesota and lead author of the study, most adults are completely unaware that they could be living among callous monsters who would remorselessly exploit them to obtain something as insignificant as an ice cream cone or a new toy. And then one last paragraph, the depth of depravity that these tiny psychopaths are capable of reaching are quite chilling, Matteo added. So <laughs> anyway, um, there's some truth to that. You know, I mean, we, we grow up, we move part of one of the ways of looking at development, you know, we talk about stages and colors and all of that, but one of the ways is simply moving from egocentric where my world is me, uh, if mommy and daddy fight, it's my fault. If this happens, it's my fault. It's just getting your sort of ego together. And then there's an ethnocentric where I begin to identify with an ever larger circle of mommy and daddy and grandma and school and community and nation. And then there's world centric, which we see comes on in the postmodern stage of development. And then there's cosmocentric which is the stage that begins to uh, feel into, as I was talking about before, the animating energetics of the cosmos, this updraft of the cosmos that's, you know, beyond this world, actually. So, um, so I don't know where I was going with that, but I do want to get back to this psychopath story because it's really interesting and it really helped me to understand um, even this idea of evil, because um, 
some of these kids really basically would qualify in, in sort of traditional terms. And I'm not going to read the whole article by any means, but I want to read a few passages. And they're talking about this one girl, Samantha, who is in this program in um, uh, Austin, Texas, called the Mateo Program, that's been very successful in treating childhood psychopathy. And actually, I do want to point out that they, uh, let me just jump to this part. It says, researchers shy away from calling children psychopaths. The term carries too much stigma and too much determinism. They prefer to describe children like Samantha as having, quote, callous and unemotional traits, a lack of empathy, which is shorthand for a cluster of characteristics and behaviors that include remorse, a lack of remorse or guilt, shallow emotions, aggression, and even cruelty, and a seeming indifference to punishment. Callous and unemotional children have no trouble hurting others to get what they want. If they do seem caring or empathetic, they're pro probably trying to manipulate you. So um, this is the Samantha, six years old. She started drawing pictures of murder weapons, a knife, a bow, uh, uh, chemicals for poisoning, a plastic bag for suffocating. This is at age six. She tells the interviewer, that she pretended to kill her stuffed animal. She's now an 11-year-old. So the interviewer asks, you were practicing on your stuffed animals? She nods. How did you feel when you were doing that to your stuffed animals? Happy. Why did it make you feel happy? Because I thought someday I was going to be able to do that to a real person. And it turns out she did. She um, was caught <clears throat> trying to strangle her younger brothers and sisters, and she had a, a bunch of them, um, to the point where, um, uh, well, here's one situation uh, where her mother caught her strangling her two-month-old brother. And, she, and the mother says, what were you doing? And Samantha says, I was trying to choke him. You realize you would have killed him. He would not have been able to breathe. He would have died. Samantha answers, I know. The mother, what about the rest of us? She, and Samantha says, I want to kill you all. And this is when they, you know, started all kinds of treatments and ended up at this Mateo Center, which has been, by their estimation, uh, remarkably uh, effective in helping their daughter. Now, there's a, um, uh, a story about Carl, who is now an adult. Uh, and he his, uh, was a child. He reports this. He said, I remember when I bit my mother really hard and she was bleeding and crying. I remember feeling so happy, so overjoyed, completely fulfilled and satisfied. It wasn't like somebody kicked me in the face and I was trying to get him back. It was more like a weird, hard to explain feeling of hatred. That's a kid. And, you know, that's news to me. I didn't know there were kids who f are that way, felt that way. Um, so let me go on. Um, they say about 1% of children have these traits. Four out of five of them grow up to be functional adults, although you probably want your, wouldn't want your kid to marry one. Um, 
But the mystery is, this is an interesting thing. The mystery is, and I'll just read it verbatim. The mystery, the one everyone is trying to solve, is why some of these children develop into normal adults while others end up on death row. And I often think of Ken Wilber talking to us about development, where he would just point out that nobody knows why people grow. Um, some people stop their development roughly at a traditional stage, a modern stage, a postmodern stage. Some people keep, go keep going, and nobody really knows why. And I remember one time he said, well, karma could account for that. And I think there's some truth to that is that, you know, we come in to this world on a stream of karma that, um, you know, as they point out in here, a lot of these kids who are psychopaths come from really bad homes uh, where they were tortured, and tormented themselves. Uh, and many of them come from perfectly good homes, uh, at least to all uh, appearances. Uh, and so that's a mystery. Uh, and, um, and that, you know, my answer to that is the procreant urge. We're just all programmed to grow, just like the flowers and the trees and six-year-olds grow into nine-year-olds. And it's, um, wow. What do you say about that? So a couple other things, um, the big red flag to, uh, for childhood psychopathy is early violence. Most of the psychopaths I meet in prison have been in fights with teachers in elementary school or junior high, Keel says, one of the researchers. When I interview them, I'd say, what's the worst thing you did in school? And they'd say, I beat my teacher unconscious. You're like, that really happened? And it turns out that it's very common. And so they then talk about the brain science and how amazing it is that we can look into the brains and see the upper right-hand quadrant correlates to these, you know, uh, sort of uh, phenomena of consciousness in the upper left-hand quadrant. And here's what he says. The first abnormality appears in the limbic systems. These are the psychopathic uh, I don't know if it's adults or children here, but at any rate, uh, the first abnormality appears in the limbic system, uh, particularly the uh, amygdala. And these are the brain structures involved in, among other things, processing emotions. In a psychopath's brain, this area contains less gray matter. It's like a weaker muscle, Keel says. A psychopath may understand intellectually that what he's doing is wrong, but he doesn't feel it. And, um, and that's really interesting. He says, for example, many psychopathic adults and callous children do not recognize fear or distress in other people's faces. And they talk about um, this one experiment where they were showing people, these psychopathic people, uh, different faces and facial expressions. And when the prisoner came to a fearful face, he said, I don't know what you call this emotion, but it's what people look like just before you stab them. So, you know, they're actually missing a piece of the antenna and we can see it in the upper right, the meat of their brains. And that, you know, starts to um, melt my condemnation uh, and my sort of uh, judgment of evil 
you know, I, I, th this is another disability. It's a dangerous one because uh, they um, uh, estimate that psychopaths, although 1% of the population, uh, commit over half of the violent crime. So, you know, getting a, a handle on this and actually seeing that there are ways to make it, it to treat it, uh, it's really important. Um, and so here's where you get into the, 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 the part that's interesting. Psychopaths not only fail to recognize distress in others, they might not feel it in themselves as well. And as a result, they don't, um, they don't respond to punishment. And all of these kids were punished and time out and, you know, all of the punishments that we have, of solitary confinement, all of it, uh, removal of privileges. Um, one researcher says, um, if you're less concerned about the negative consequences of your actions, you're more likely to continue engaging them. I guess that's obvious. Okay, so anyway, this insight about punishment not working is driving a new wave of treatment. And, um, and at, at this treatment center in Austin, the Mendota Center, it's the center's real breakthrough, as they say, in deploying the anomalies of the psychopathic brain to their advantage. Specifically, they downplay punishments and they dangle rewards. And it turns out that these kids, while they're not particularly responsive to punishment, they love rewards. They love attention. They love, you know, collecting things. They love having the biggest and best. Um, they talk about at Mendota, the boys can accumulate points to join ever more prestigious clubs. The Club 19, the Club 23, the VIP club. As they ascend in status, they earn privileges and treats, candy bars, baseball cards, pizza on Saturday, the chance to play Xbox or stay up late. Now, hitting somebody, uh, throwing urine or cussing out the staff may cost the boy points, but not for long, since callous and unemotional kids aren't generally deterred by punishment. And the interviewer talks about uh, going to uh, visit one of these kids, a 17-year-old boy with a nation mustache. And she says, he fans out his collection of basketball cards and says, this is like 50 basketball cards, he says, and I can almost see his reward centers glowing, she says. He said, I have the most and best basketball cards out there. Does any of this sound familiar? <laughs> anyway, um, Let's see. So just some statistics on how this treatment works. So uh, they had a group of, of kids who just went to the regular uh, juvenile correction facilities and then uh, the same number of kids who went through the, uh, the Mendota Center. And here's the results. In the four and a half years since their release, the Mendota boys have been far less likely to reoffend. 64% versus 97%. 64% doesn't seem great to me, but it's a heck of a lot better than 97. And far less likely to commit violent crime, 36% versus 60%. Most striking, the ordinary delinquents have killed 16 people. There was 140 of them, 16 people they've killed since their release. The boys from Mendota, not one. So, um, 
So basically what they're trying to do, and, and I'll just read it. He said, we're not trying to get these kids to go from the Joker in the dark night to Mr. Rogers, but they can develop a cognitive moral conscience. They're not feeling it. They, you know, they got the words, but not the music, but still they got the words. He says it's an intellectual awareness that life will be more rewarding if they play by the rules. And in our world, that's huge. So they followed this Carl along, and uh, uh, he's the one who bit his mother and felt deep fulfillment and joy. And he is now, he found God. Um, and as they say, uh, he's not, uh, he falls short of the Christian ideal, but he attends church every week. And of course, this is a standard develop move, developmental move, is that you organize the chaos of the egocentric world, uh, which is what we call the red stage of development, by moving into the amber, the spiral dynamics blue, the, uh, the traditionalist stage of development, where all power is given to God. And you kind of don't have to take care of yourself in the same way anymore. And, um, and that's, you know, a time-honored strategy for civilizing um, violent people. Um, and, and it's so interesting to me that um, he became an undertaker. And he, as, as they say here, Carl cheer cheerfully admits that the death business appeals to him. As a child, he says, I had a deep fascination with knives and cutting and stealing. So it's, it's knives and cutting and killing, if only stealing, killing. So it's a harmless way to express some level of what you might call morbid curiosity. And I think that morbid curiosity taken to its extreme, that's the home of serial killers, okay? So it's the same energy, but everything in moderation. So... <laughs> A happy ending for Carl and some hope um, uh, for these kids who have a disability that is scary and dangerous and um, and one that uh, we want to just, you know, I used to joke that psychopaths are people, too. I'm actually beginning to realize it. And so that's that's helpful. I can drop that I it relationship with them, even though they may still have it with me. So. I don't know how that works, but working on it. So, you know, back to Trump. There's no reason in his history to think that he's murderous in the way that these, you know, extreme kids are. But there's no doubt that he's on some spectrum of lack of empathy, callousness, and he clearly responds to rewards more than he does punishment. I mean, I've never seen anybody create more trouble for himself, including, you know, uh, the uh, Mueller investigation uh, into his Russian ties and everything else um, than, than, than him, simply because he had an impulse to fire Comey and, 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 and you know, creates all kinds of trouble for himself. But the trouble doesn't bother him. I mean, I see some of the trouble that he gets himself in, and I think, how can he stand it? And it doesn't seem to bother him. And this is that, you know, what we just heard about with these callous kids. They, they, punishment's not the way to go. It's rewards. And, um, you know, just, just it's, it's fun to read some of the childhood stories of Trump. He was, you know, clearly a bully, 
but basically garden variety, again, not murderous. He's the kid, his sister talks about how he threw his own birthday cake at a seven, uh, seven-year-old party, um, you know, just causing trouble and, and grief and enjoying it and seeing the, 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 uh, the dismay of others and not having it be a problem. Uh, one of his childhood neighbors, this is from the Washington Post, I'll read it, Dennis Burnham, four years younger, uh, said that Donald was known to be a bully in the neighborhood. He told the story of his mother, the mother told him the story of the time when she left him in a playpen, left this Dennis kid in the playpen in the backyard, was adjoining the Trump's property. And she looked out and saw Donald was standing at the fence using his playpen for tra target practice, throwing stones at the playpen. And um, Donald spent enough time in detention that his buddies nicknamed the punishment the DTs for short for Donald Trump. So again, immune to punishment, um, but uh, likes the rewards. He, he wrote a poem in his first fifth grade yearbook. I like to hear the crowd give cheers so loud and noisy to my ears. Cause he was a star baseball player and he liked to give the, hear the crowd give cheers so loud and noisy to his ears. Um, this is one that's a little bit um, maybe more troublesome. In his book, The Art of the Deal, Trump himself relates the story of giving his music teacher a black eye. So, you know, these, these kids in this program, you know, uh, knock their teachers out. Uh, and he gave his teacher a black eye. Why? Because, quote, I didn't think he knew anything about music. So at any rate, um, he was enough uh, of a worry, even to his parents, who are um, possibly also cut from his same cloth, particularly his dad. I think there's you know, a lot known about that. Uh, his dad hated losers and, 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 and really loved killers, is how he put it. You got to be a killer. Uh, but even they were sufficiently um, worried about Donald that they sent him, uh, I guess, suddenly uh, to a military academy when he was 14. And, um, and he, by all accounts, did well there. And again, this is like uh, accepting Jesus as your personal savior. Going to a military academy is a time-honored way of civilizing a, a, an out-of-control kid. Um, and so he actually did well, and apparently he got civilized. Now, they do use a lot of punishment there. And again, the, the, they interviewed his drill sergeant. He was not that, um, uh, you know, he's still kind of immune to the punishment. Uh, but as the drill his drill sergeant said, he wanted to be number one. He wanted to be noticed. He wanted to be recognized. And, and I think this is a strange thing to remember all these many years later, but he says, and he liked compliments. So, um, so then, you know, Donald becomes a young adult and, you know, his exploits at this point are legion, but there's a couple that just sort of stick out to me that I've heard over the year, over the year, it seems like years, but years. Um, he said that one time he went with his dad to the dedication of the Verrazano Narrows Bridge in New York. His dad was a big real estate developer and um, it was a big uh, celebration. And he said, I noticed that no one paid homage 
to the 85-year-old Swedish designer who had traveled from Europe for the occasion of the dedication. The, the, the designer just wasn't getting enough homage. And Trump said, this is what he told his bi biographer. He said, I realized then and there that if you let people treat you how they want, you're being made a fool. I'll say that again. I realized then and there that if you let people treat you how they want, you're being made a fool. I mean, imagine thinking that. You know, I, I, I actually want people to treat me the way they want. I want them to want to treat me well. But, a, but, but that, the idea of letting them treat me the way they want to. So you're basically, and, and this is Trump, and this is egocentric, is, you know, spends his days dominating the system, the group, the person that he's with. And I think that probably goes for his family, too. Apparently it does from some of those stories. So, wow. Um, so there's that. And then something that Rudy Giuliani said, and of course, Rudy Giuliani worked with Trump a good bit. He was mayor of New York when Donald Trump was one of the playboys and Miss America pageant producers and all of that good stuff. Uh, and of course, uh, real estate developers. And, um, and, and Rudy Giuliani said that he um, never saw anybody else who in a negotiation didn't just want to win, but he wanted the other guy to lose. So again, that feeling of the pleasure of inflicting pain is, um, you know, just remarkable. And I, um, you know, I, we, it, I used to teach negotiation. And, and of course, you know, the, the idea among negotiators these days is win-win. Find out what the other person wants and help them get it so that you can get what you want. And if everybody gets a bigger pie. And that's a modernist's way of, of viewing things. Um, because, you know, it's just one of the realizations of modernity is that, wait a second, fighting is just beating us both up. Why don't we trade and, and do things together and, 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 you know, create together? And he didn't make that leap. So, so then the question is, is he growing? Um, you know, I, I have to think that the sheer karma of that office is bringing something online. Uh, um, uh, I, I do, there are a couple things. The, the night he won, uh, he was interviewed and, and one of the reporters asked him if he wanted to do the thing that he promised the whole campaign, which was to prosecute Hillary Clinton for her emails. And his answer was, I don't want to hurt those people. And I thought, oh, maybe Donald Trump does have a, you know, good bone in his body. And uh, of course, he's sort of it's not how he's acting now. He wants to hurt Hillary plenty and, and does. But I thought, you know, this is this is where states come in handy. You know, he just won the presidency. There was a, he had a state experience and it included love. And there was a couple times when I saw him talking about God. You know, he's working with the evangelicals. And um, and I actually got the feeling that he not he sort of felt what he was talking about. But who knows, you know, maybe, you know, everybody can grow. That's sort of one of the things that I think we, an assumption we want to make in integral. But 
But again, having me see him not as just a big, what Hillary called him, a back off, you creep, a big creep, which is kind of how I feel. That's sort of my orange self. I'm repulsed by it, literally. Um, I can now knowing him, this is how I differentiate, you know, we would always want to see more. That's, that's the de definition of development is, do we want to just see more components, turn that Google map up that I can see that he's missing a piece of his antenna. Um, and, um, you know, uh, it helps me forgive him. It helps me not hate him. Uh, it doesn't help me resist him. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't mean I can't resist him. Uh, in fact, maybe it makes me more effective at resisting him uh, because I, I've lost some of my sort of magical thinking. I, I think this, this idea of um, rewards, not punishments, is actually extra dangerous with him because, um, you know, Rob Smith in one of his pieces said that he predicted that Trump would start a war uh, before the 2020 election. Uh, of course, that's a time-honored strategy for a president to have a bump in his approval ratings. And, you know, we know how Donald Trump loves that. And so there'd be a, there would be a reward for him in that. Uh, and, you know, normally the fear of that is what keeps people from doing that. And, and Trump has said in the past, why can't we use our nuclear weapons? He's asked generals. So, um, you know. I used to think that uh, that wasn't uh, possible, but I think that less, I think that a little less now, having understood this, you know, sort of um, world that people who have callousness and a lack of empathy live in. So that's that for today. Okay, the ending may have been a little abrupt, but um, we're learning. And now here is Tuesday's episode on how all of that relates to North Korea. Today, I want to look at some of the developments regarding North Korea and the back and forth uh, between Trump and Kim Jong-un. Um, <laughs> and developmental theory really does help us understand this, I think. Um, yesterday, I ended this podcast by saying that I was more worried about America getting into another war than I have been in a long time. And that's not to say I'm super worried about it, but I've gone from a two to a three on a 10 scale, and that's significant, and I don't want to go any higher. But part of it is that, um, you know, when I take into account the character of, that we know of Donald Trump and the sort of missing pieces of the character of Kim Jong-un we don't know that much about. It's a bad mixture. So let's just see if we could sort this out using some integral understanding. Uh, yesterday, I focused on some research and an article I read in um, The Atlantic about psychopathic children. And um, we don't call them psychopathic children. We call them children with callous disorder, uh, lack of emotion, lack of empathy, uh, because it turns out that they're treatable. And, um, and we noted that one of the things that, that really works, in fact, the fundamental thing that works with these children is 
uh, sort of stopping punishment and adding re- rewards. They they don't respond to punishment and they do respond to, to rewards. And as I said, I, I think Trump can be understood uh, in terms of this, because although he's not at the murderous extremes, as some kids are, literally, uh, but he does have some of these qualities that I think help us understand him in these kinds of situations. So I just want to set that aside for a minute as a, as a quick recap, as we look at the other side of this potential nightmare, and that is uh, Kim Jong-un. And developmental theory helps us here, too, uh, because one of the things <clears throat> that um, we realize is that the doctrine of mutually assured destruction, the MAD doctrine, did keep the world safe for, you know, 60 years, 70 years, still does, in the sense that the big nuclear powers, Russia, China, and the United States, know that any attack by any of them would create the mutual destruction of all of them. Um, That works for people who are at traditional and higher, and a mature traditional and higher. So we're talking a mature amber into orange and up. And you can tell these people because they don't live in caves. (laughs) You know, they live in the Kremlin. They have nice lives. They live, in the case of Kim Jong-un, he lives a life of lavish splendor, you know, by any standards. Uh, They uh, estimate that he spends $600 million a year on, you know, caviar from Iran and pork from Denmark and uh, Yves Saint Laurent cigarettes. I didn't know there was such a thing, but he has a fleet of Mercedes. It's the whole bit. And so people like that, you know, at that stage, want to live. And they want their kids to live, and um, you know they uh, they aren't into you know today is a good day to die. Today is a good day to die is the slogan of the earlier stage, which is what we call magenta or warrior and early traditional. That sort of violent jihad, like ISIS, is in that category. And these are the guys you really have to worry about because they. Well, they suicide all the time, you know, with uh, just explosives trapped to their body. Imagine how proud they would be to walk into Central Park with a nuclear knapsack on their back, if there is such a thing, even a dirty bomb. I mean, it would change the world. And so that's really the nuclear threat that in a sense worries me more that there is so much nuclear material, you know, running, uh, uh, you know, in like Pakistan and places where uh, these people at red, you know, the warrior today is a good day to die. People can get their hands on it. But that's not North Korea. Um, so I'm not sure that gives me a lot. It, it gives me some comfort knowing that, I got to say. But there's another factor here that we have to look at that worries me more. 
And that is that, you know, I've talked talk yesterday about Trump's childhood. Um, we know something about Kim's childhood, too. He uh, was educated in his teenage years in a very expensive school in Switzerland. And his classmates remember him as being a bit dim, um, or at least appearing so. He couldn't speak German or English very well. Which I don't know how much that tells me because, you know, I can't speak German or, or Korean very well, which would make sense on, on the Korean side. But in the German side, I studied it for four years. <laughs> you know, I should know something, but at any rate. But he was into basketball. He idolized Michael Jordan. You know, he has this bromance between himself and Dennis Rodman. And, and so, um, you know, uh, he, he did get some Western download. There and that's important. You know, you enter a stream of a new strata of development. It te does tend to pull you up, but there's, you know, I thought one of the um, sort of telling details that his classmates told about his childhood, and this is not so good, is that he played only Korean music. And he said, the, the, the one classmate said, he played the national anthem of Korea many, maybe a thousand times. And that tells me that his heart, his sort of magenta, we're getting into the sort of tribal lower chakra area where the, the blood and soil area is that he has this deep mythic sort of attachment to the homeland. And, um, you know, that is, you know, well, well, from his perspective, it's kind of like, why wouldn't he? <laughs> he's the he's the sun king, you know. He's 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 right at the center of the myth. It's early um, uh, red, actually. I mean, a lot of North Korea is run like a mafia, you know, where it's just everybody's always looking at the leader, and anybody can get whacked at any time. But there's also this sort of earlier stage that has some magenta. It's like the pharaohs. They were divine. And, you know, I think the last one in the West was the Sun King, which is Louis XIV. But uh, and that went into the 1700s. But, you know, eventually people stopped believing that. But apparently in Korea, they still do. And maybe he even does. And so in that case, all bets are off. We're down in a sort of a a territory that we might relate to as a David Koresh or a Jim Jones, where it's this sort of crazy mythic absolute power, which, of course, corrupts absolutely. Um, you know, there's a reason that we grow out of egocentric psychic structures. There's a reason that children grow out of red, uh, and it's because it stops working. You know, um, you know, six-year-old pouting is not nearly as cute as a three-year-old pouting. And, you know, we get the message. And, you know, a 30-year-old throwing a birthday cake because he didn't get the piece is people frown on that. So, but what if that never happened for you? And, you know, what if every time somebody met you, they sort of trembled like you were Jesus or Beyonce? You know, would you find that addicting? Would you find that annoying? Um, that's, these are all wild cards to me.
And, um, excuse me, uh, integral theory helps us to sort of understand that wildcard aspect. We do know that they do want to activate their people's, people's lower chakras. They don't, they're just not after their hearts. They are. They have these big, beautiful celebrations and these huge stadium shows, and they're amazing. But they also want to invoke fear in these lower chakras. And that's, you know, deep red. Um, you know, that's where they have the stadium shows where they strap people to big armored artillery and, and shoot them all in sequence. And everybody has to come watch that. Imagine that. I mean, they're just literally obliterated. And so, you know, at that stage, um, insulting the leader is, well, capital offense, but it's also, you know, condemns you to the, the, the hell, your country's hell in, in a way. And it's just, so Trump doing that I don't know. You know, maybe there's some red to red mind melt that these two could have. <laughs> you know, Trump said he wanted to meet him. Maybe they should. You know, uh, maybe the rest of us are just overthinking it. But um, it does worry me. Uh, you know, it, it's not mutually assured destruction. Uh, Trump would not be destroyed and America would not. Uh, but. Um, what would it be? The YAD, the the YAD doctrine. Um, your assured destruction, Kim, <laughs> and that's in some ways even more problematic because we got the guy who we know doesn't want to die, Trump, and he's not really very. He doesn't have a lot of uh, sensors for danger or for um, fear or for upset or for punishment, but he has big time receptors for approval. And as we know, every time a president launches a military exercise or war, their approval ratings go sky high. Now, they all go down in the toilet a few years later, but Trump doesn't think a few years later. Um, Red doesn't think a few years later. So, you know, you don't usually hear the Daily Evolver be worried, uh, but uh, I am uh, a, a bit more than usual. All right, folks, that's it for this episode of the Daily Evolver. Actually, two episodes of the Daily Daily Evolver. And again, I'm going to start that back up on October uh, 9th. So if you are interested, check it out on Integral Life. And um, otherwise, see you next time. <laughs>